Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Jason Grishkoff. Jason is the founder of the popular music blog Indie Shuffle, as well as the music submission site SubmitHub. Needless to say, Jason knows a thing or two about what makes artists and brands successful, and I was really excited to have him on the show. Now, in this episode, we start off with Jason's background, discussing his progression from semi-pro Counter-Strike player to an indie music blogger. We talk about how he turned his passion for sharing music with friends into his blog and Indie Shuffle, and how he grew that blog by himself while working nine to five. We discussed the two pivotal shifts by both Google and Facebook that really just killed music blog traffic, kind of led to their demise, and why, despite that, he still feels that blogs had a really big influence in the music industry in 2020. Later on, we discussed how Jason turned a nagging submission management problem for his blog into his music submission site, SubmitHub. Jason offers his best advice on how to make the most out of SubmitHub, discussing how to maximize your submission approvals, as well as a way to earn free premium credits that most people aren't aware of. On the marketing side, Jason dissects what an indie marketing campaign should look like in 2020. He discusses why Spotify playlists aren't as important as everyone thinks and where he feels that your time is much better spent in order to grow your project and fan base. He also discusses how to approach and deal with rejection as an artist and why he feels creatives should ditch the self-help books and start reading more fiction. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM Podcast with Jason Grishkoff. All right, welcome back to the EDM Podcast today. I'm joined by Jason Grishkoff. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm alive. It's 8 p.m. over here, and so this is my final push of the day. For people that don't know you, you're the founder of Indie Shuffle and more recently SubmitHub, but before we get into those two things, I kind of want to spin it back, and I want to learn more about where music was for you growing up and kind of into your high school and college years. I had a bit of a unique upbringing in that both of my parents were classical musicians in the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra. So I grew up running around the the aisles (laughs) trying to occupy my time while they were doing their rehearsals. And and, I mean, that was awesome. I I was surrounded by a full-on symphony multiple times a week, which was great. Naturally, that meant that I didn't have many options when it came to whether or not I wanted to learn instruments, it was it was a given, right? So mm-hmm. I grew up playing violin and piano and then eventually started singing opera, obviously was part of a choir. All of that, I think, led me to, by the time I was about 14 or 15, absolutely revolt, turn around and say, this is not what I want to do. And uh, my parents, of course, asked what I wanted to do. And, and the answer was quite clear at 15. I wanted to become a professional Counter-Strike player. So (laughs) (laughs) the lucrative career career of being a professional Counter-Strike player. (laughs) Well, look, I I did go semi-pro. I got a couple caffeine sponsorships. So I would get free candy and some free sodas. And once or twice, I got some free hardware out of it. But no, it it wasn't exactly the lucrative career I was hoping for. Uh, Nor should I have. I I was about 16 or 17. But what yeah. was cool about it is that it introduced me to a bit more of the tech world. 
at one point when I was running one of these online competitions and trying to drum up some support around our team, a couple guys noticed me and brought me on to help spearhead their marketing running Counter-Strike servers. And so that was kind of my, my first exposure to coding. And while yeah. I wasn't doing the coding myself, it was really cool to see these guys who were able to weave this magic and really make something happen. So I think that that transition from, from the musical background as a kid to suddenly having a tech focus, uh, those two blended together quite nicely, such that by the time I started my music blog in 2008, I was still wholly obsessed with discovering new music and listening to stuff. I mean, I, I, I just, I love music, but, yeah. but what I really wanted to produce from an output standpoint was, was like websites and, and yeah. grow. And I became addicted to growth. How do I get more visitors? How do I do that type of stuff? And so Indie Shuffle came together as this perfect collision of, of the abundance of music I had, which was all torrented illegally. And then this tech exposure that I had gotten when I was you know playing Counter-Strike. So that I would say is how my first 20 years or so shaped where I am today. So where were you in your life in 2008, kind of before you first started Indie Shuffle? Were you working? Were you in school? Kind of talk me through that. I graduated from university in San Diego in 2007. And I naturally went ahead and did the big job hunt. I think I sent out about 150 resumes. I got five or six interviews and eventually a firm in Washington, D.C. picked me up. And this was all about six months before the 2008 financial crisis. So my timing yeah. was spot on. <laughs> and so I flew out to D.C., great big adventure, going to go begin a new job. And I didn't know a soul. I landed in a city by myself. I had a few very loose connections, friends of friends who let me crash in their spare room. And their spare room didn't have windows. It was dark. I didn't like them. It was just terrible. And I was depressed. Yeah. And so I took that as an opportunity to try and reconnect with a lot of the people that I had left behind on the West Coast. And, and the way to, to do that for me was to share music. So I was part of a, a couple torrenting sites, one called uh, what.cd, which I think had formerly been called oink.co.uk. But they were torrent websites that were private. Uh, as as private as a website with 20,000 members could be. But it was one of those ones where, you know, you, you can only join if you get invited type of things. And I was downloading albums left and right. And it was exclusively for music. The focus was on high quality FLAC files. So I was just buried up past my head in new music. And it was awesome. And I had to, I had to share that. So it became a, a great creative outlet to counterbalance that, that sudden loss of friendship and, and I guess mild depression that I was experiencing. And, and that, that output eventually blossomed into a website. So I would send out an email once a week with some of my favorite discoveries. And, and I remember a few of the bands I was discovering back then, like Tudor Cinema Club, Friendly Fires, um, Phoenix. Obviously, Phoenix has been around for quite a lot. But uh, I think they had Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix come out right around then. And so I was going through this renaissance of music discovery. And the emails that I was sending out quickly transitioned into kind of a, a 
tacky little website, which transitioned into a much better website. And then it became my obsession to tinker with the website and try to figure out how to get more people visiting it. And oh, man, that, that just took off from there. You said that was around 2008 that Indie Shuffle was created. Walk people through what the space was like for blogs at that point. In 2008, the blogosphere was quite an exciting place to be. <laughs> Some people would compare it to the wild, wild west. Uh, yeah. It, it was free reign. And there weren't websites like SoundCloud. Spotify obviously wasn't around. And all of us, we were hosting MP3s illegally. So a lot of the usage that we were getting on our website was not just the fact that we were able to discover and surface some really good discover, um, um, new music, but we were offering it up for download. So people could land on our website, download the MP3, and, and build up a nice little mixtape for themselves. And I think 2008, 2009 is when blogs really took off and became hugely influential. And there were two players in the ecosystem that started to bring all of that together. One of them was called Elbows, and the second one was called Hype Machine. Hype Machine is still around, Elbows predated Hype Machine, but Elbows was uh, similar. It aggregated blog content and would drive a lot of traffic to the blogs. But one extra thing that Elbows had, which Hype Machine really missed out on, was a community. They had a forum that all of the bloggers could get together with and connect on, share ideas, share tips. And it became a bit of a community where we were constantly trying to figure out how to grow our websites, both from a traffic, design, UX, and, and monetization standpoint. So 2008, 2009, 2010 were really cool times because we had a lot of growth in terms of people visiting our websites, and we also had a strong community around it. That then pivoted, you know, 2010 until 2013, I would say was the peak of music blogging. And the community actually had started to fade by then. It became a bit of a, a centralization, if you will. Hype Machine dominated everything, right? If you hit number one on Hype Machine, you were going to get booked for Coachella. And that dramatically increased the power that a lot of us music bloggers had. And many different businesses cropped up around it. I mean, the PR industry within music absolutely took off. And yeah. next thing you know, every college kid was suddenly a publicist who was pushing the next big EDM thing. And yeah. music blogs could really move the needle as far as who was getting discovered. And then a couple of mm -hmm. things happened that, that really shook up the ecosystem. Um, one of the first was YouTube launched uh, a wonderful partnership with Google, who owned them by that point. Ironically, I was working for them at the time. The big change they made was that if you searched for any song, the YouTube video screenshot was the main thing that showed up in the search result. And you'll still see this today. If you search for a song, number one result is a giant YouTube screen grab, right? That absolutely devoured the traffic that we were getting to our music blogs. So overnight, we lost a chunk of traffic. Then Facebook turned off their page reach, which was another big one, not just for music blogs, but for all blogs in general, yeah. right? Facebook built pages around the idea that you could really reach with, reach and engage with your audience. And we were, we were driving more than a million visitors per month to our website, just through face, just through our Facebook page. And we weren't advertising. The only advertising we were doing was to grow our Facebook page. And then they, they, on, on December 6th, 2013, 
I'll never forget the day they flipped the switch. <laughs> they yeah. sent out an email that said, great news. We'd love to introduce you to a new Facebook feature. It's going to allow you to reach your audience. It's called promoted posts. Uh, and by the way, we're shutting off your current reach. And so that was the second thing that sort of knocked a lot of blogs sideways because yeah. we could no longer contact the people who had followed us because they wanted to see our content. And it, it wasn't just music blogs. It was all blogs. And this, this interestingly predates clickbait. 2013, clickbait wasn't so much of a thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so you'd put up a great new song by Tudor Cinema Club to bring them up again. And next thing you know, you got 10,000 people on the website. So yeah. that was the second thing. And then, and then the third one is, is Spotify. The rise of Spotify really put a lot of pressure on music blogs because it gave people a much better platform for streaming. And if you're paying $10 a month, why are you going to look anywhere else? So 2013 started to see this shift where music logs were, were no longer the bee's knees and it, and it became a lot more consolidated. And uh, yeah. I mean, it pushed towards the, the big corporations, which I think most indie publishers of any subject matter have experienced over the last decade, right? Yeah, so that put the squeeze on music blogs and and um, our influence started to diminish in a way, but our demand did not. So by 2015, I was receiving 300 or more email pitches per day from people who were hoping that Indie Shuffle would pick up their song and give it some coverage. While we had lost a lot of our visitors, we found that we still did actually have a fair bit of influence because many of the Spotify editors were following... Indie Shuffle. In 2015, Hype Machine was still pretty relevant. Gosh, that sort of brings us to the, the doorstep of Submit Hub, huh? Yeah, so let's kind of get into it. So when you first had those ideas for Submit Hub, I would imagine that you were, to an extent, kind of scrambling with the heavily diminished traffic and influence that blogs kind of had. So were you thinking about, okay, I need to create something new that you know fits into this current ecosystem better or at the same time where you're just trying to figure out ways that you could you know develop and change what you already had in an amazing asset and blog in indie shuffle i think it was more of the former uh, our ad revenue was drying up and i had quit my job at google to take indie shuffle full-time i did that in at the start of 2013 and that was a huge decision and it was based on the assumption that indie shuffle's revenue would grow and if not grow, at least remain stable. And the exact opposite happened. Um, so a lot of the decision was driven by my, I don't want to say fear. It was much more measured and, and methodical. But I anticipated that I wouldn't be able to keep running Indie Shuffle as a full-time job for many more years. Let's put it that way. And so I was looking for a slightly different business model, something that I could set up and, and transition towards. And so solving a problem that I had with my day-to-day workflow seemed like a pretty easy way to do it. And yeah. um, Indie Shuffle was, it was in cruise control in a way. So I was able to spend three months head down focused. I mean, this was before I met my, my wife, uh, definitely before I had kids. And uh, I, I just shuttled for three months. I just coded, submit her. That's what I did. And, and the basis, the, the original version of Submit Hub was just a really simple submission form. Artist name, song title, paste a link to your song, and then I would do some magic on the back end so that it all came through in a nice, consistent feed with a thumb up, a thumb down. There was no monetization originally, but I 
if if memory serves me right, I sort of had that whole idea already planned out before I'd even started coding it. The writing was on the wall that Indie Shuffle's days were numbered, at least as a as a genuine source of revenue. And boy, was I right. I think today we're making about $10 a day in revenue. So kind of from there, you had your you know close network of friends that were using it. Did you do anything out of the ordinary in order to kind of market it and promote it to get at least at the start, more um, you know, influencers in terms of blogs and YouTube channels, kind of Spotify playlists from it. The original focus of SubmitHub was entirely music blogs. So this was 2015, and Spotify playlists were emerging, but not yet a thing. So God knows if there's actually a thing today, even in 2020, but we can get into that later. <laughs> um, so the original version was just music blogs. And yeah. I sat down and I emailed all... 1,000 music blogs that were on Hype Machine. It took me a while. And I think many artists can relate to that process. And perhaps, ironically, almost none of them responded to me because their inboxes were so full of submissions. But I was able to convince, I think within the first six months, I was able to convince close to 50 of them to sign up and, and give SubmitHub a whirl. And the retention rate actually ended up being really high because many of them were in the same boat. Their revenue source was drying up. Not that many of them were doing it full-time, but still they, they had some revenue they were getting. That yeah. was drying up. They were finding themselves completely overwhelmed by submissions. And because their revenue was drying up, it became no longer worth it to sit down for three or four hours every day and sift through those submissions. So it presented a very timely solution for a problem that many bloggers were having. And so we managed to get about 50 people signed up. Um, I think Dylan joined me. He's still on my team today, about six months into it. And the first thing he was tossed with was taking over a lot of that outreach that I was doing to try and sign up more people. From my perspective, it was always a matter of signing up more curators. And I never actually did any marketing towards artists themselves, because the idea was that the curators themselves would be doing all of the marketing and pushing those artists to submit up. To this day, there's still somewhat the same philosophy involved. So we don't spend a lot of time on marketing and branding and advertising because I want the service to speak for itself. And if curators are happy with the way it works, they're going to drive artists to it. And if artists find value from it, they're going to keep using it. So that, that symbiosis, that balance has really pushed the platform up to the size it is today without us actually having to put that much effort into marketing it. So I kind of alluded to some of the other outlets that you're uh, pushing to now with Submit Hub in terms of Spotify, YouTube. I know you have a few others in there. Outside of kind of expanding your creators, what are some of the biggest changes or additions that you've made since launching it with that initial group of, say, 10 people? Let's start with Spotify playlisters. Submit Hub has some data publicly available that you won't find anywhere else, which is average listeners per playlist. And... It's one of the insights that I think is the coolest thing I've managed to pull together. Um, It was initiated based on a scathing article by a man named Ari Hurstan. Uh, It wasn't Mm -hmm. that scathing, but he really, it it did hit me in in all the right spots. In, In 2018, early 2018, he wrote an article about Submit Hub's Spotify playlist offering. And it was a fairly new thing that we had available. And we were using Spotify's API and the data they had available. And pretty much the only thing they provide is the number of followers on a playlist. And so when you were submitting to people through SubmitHub, 
it was showing you the number of followers they had. And Ari's beef was that some of those playlists had more than 100,000 followers and generated absolutely zilch in terms of engagement. And he argued that I was unintentionally misleading the users and providing a really bad service as a result. So he didn't say it was my fault per se, but he did call me out for it. And so I went into panic mode and I tried to figure out a way to get that data because Spotify doesn't actually make it public at all. And we've got three different methods that we use to gather that information now. And I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the way it's, it's presented. But at the end of the day, what it means is that if you are an artist and you're trying to figure out which playlists to present your music to, we can actually show you what their engagement looks like. So that's one of the cooler features I think that SubmitHub offers that you won't find anywhere else. I think Chartmetric used to have data along those lines, but they no longer do or they don't keep it updated anymore. Oh, and it's it's totally public. You don't even have to have an account. You can just visit SubmitHub and you'll see it all. So that's one pretty cool thing that coded. Another really cool feature was the chat rooms. And that's taking it back to the Elbows community building days. Yeah. So it's it's really important to have that ability to communicate with other curators or other artists or whatever. But that, that open connection has really allowed SubmitHub to become what it is today because I'm, I'm in there actively listening to people all day, every day. And a lot of those suggestions have shaped complaints too, right? Have, have yeah. shaped the way that SubmitHub has evolved because what I'm doing here is constantly trying to balance the experience of curators and the experience of musicians. And it's, it's a, a difficult balance, but ultimately I want, I want both of them to be as happy as possible. And so that means that I have to listen to a lot of the complaints and concerns because that shapes the next thing I'm going to code. All right. So at this point, you kind of talked about how it seems like you really enjoy listening to what people do and don't like about Submit Hub and then making changes directly to it. What is kind of driving you in 2020 to continue growing Submit Hub? I, I, I think I mentioned at the start of the conversation that I was addicted to that growth. And I think I think most humans are in general. Um, it, it's kind of like busting out an old N64 game or something like that. That learning curve we get addicted to, and we love to to beat those challenges. And so, from my perspective, it's it's about continually growing and watching indie shuffle slowly whittle away. I mean, we, we're still doing something like ten thousand uniques per day. It's it's still big and still has a good amount of traction, but it's not anything like it used to. So watching that slowly whittle away, it, it really draws draws on your ego, ethos, whatever. And so yeah. on the flip side, watching something grow just makes you want to watch it, you know, grow it more and more and more and more. So I think what drives me with Submit Hub is that that desire to keep improving it, to keep making it better, ultimately to to keep the curators and artists happier and happier. And I know I know it's a difficult platform, right? The the entire principle of the platform is do you like this song enough to share it or not? And and that or not part is really difficult for artists. So it's a challenge every day to try and and set expectations better, to provide a more targeted experience, to try and get better results for people. And and I think those are some of the things that keep me going. 
So one thing that I want to talk about that I would imagine we both have similar opinions on, but I just kind of want to pitch you it in the fact that in order for people to be more successful with SubmitHub, they've got to pay you. They've got to give money in order for people just to get a chance to listen to their music. And you know, I think there's a group of artists that think they really shouldn't have to pay for a promotion for the music. They think that they should be able to organically get traction and grow it and that blog should be lining up for them or at least like you know they shouldn't have to pay for it so where do you kind of stand on this in terms of you know artists thinking hey I shouldn't have to pay for promotion so why would I use submit hub when I quote unquote have to give them money even though technically they can do it for free you go from softball question to hardball question <laughs> it's it's one of the challenges that has been the hardest to face with submit hub when someone brings that up, the actual answer is it doesn't work that way. Whether it should work that way or not, I think is where a bit of the debate comes up. At the end of the day, almost none of these curators are doing it full time. They're doing it as a hobby when they get home. And if you gave them the choice, many of them would love to just go out and search for music themselves. But they can't. As soon as you are a, are a curator and you put your name out in the public space, you're going to get absolutely bombarded by artists who are looking for a piece of your time. Yeah. And it's cool at first. I remember when I, when I was in the early days of Indie Shuffle and I would get emails, it was awesome. I would read them, I'd respond to them, I'd listen, I'd probably blog about it. That initial excitement wears off very quickly as a curator. Back in 2008, 2009, 2010, we were able to earn some money from advertising revenue. Today, we're not. And so... As curators, if we're going to sit down and spend two or three hours a day actually paying attention to the submissions that we get, it tends to need to be compensated. I think we've worked it out. Most of the curators on SubmitHub are earning about $15 an hour. Okay. So I think there's, there's a bit of a misconception that, that it's the highway robbery and they're just running off with thousands of dollars every day. They're not. The average take-home for a month is about $150. There are definitely some curators who are making... $1,000, $2,000, even $3,000 a month on SubmitHub. But many of those are, are much larger, more recognizable names with a lot of influence, and, and they are dedicating the resources required to go through 200 or 300 submissions a day. So, oh, man, it's not easy. Look, as an artist, everywhere you turn, there's people trying to take money from you, right? Yeah. you got to pay for the, the software that you're using. you got to pay for the hardware that you're using. you got to pay to distribute your music, right? I mean, I don't see people bitching about the fact that most of these distributors cost an arm and a leg in perpetuity. It's expensive, right? And so mm -hmm. finally, when it all comes around and you've, you've invested all that time and money into doing it and you want someone to listen to your song and the next thing you know, you're confronted with yet another paywall, I can relate. It's not easy. However, it's way cheaper than it used to be, right? It's way yeah. cheaper. A publicist is going to cost you $1,500 or more per month. If you spent $1,500 on SubmitHub, well, you'd probably see the needle move quite a bit. That's a big spend. You don't need to spend that much money on SubmitHub. I mean, $100 on a song is probably more than enough, especially if you're targeting quite well. At the end of the day, it's not that expensive. But look, if you're willing to go and spend money on Instagram ads, Facebook ads, printing flyers, making t-shirts, doing whatever, spending $100 on promoting your song so that people actually listen to it is probably a worthwhile investment. And so the community that's not cool with the idea tend to be somewhat vocal, but I think they're actually quite small. I mean, I think 
there's a community that I would say is vocal about it. And then people that don't feel like they have the money. And, you know, most artists, myself included, don't have 1500 bucks a month to throw away at PR, but I think it's worth it to find those effective small things that you can do. Even if you have, let's just say a release budget of $50, there's still a lot that you can do. Kind of like you said earlier, being really targeted with who you're using with Submit Hub and then other small things like extremely targeted Facebook or Instagram ads, that small amount of money, you know, just an extra three or four hours of work at your job can make a big difference. Absolutely. And hey, you can actually earn free premium credits on Submit Hub if you give feedback to other artists. So, so that's, a, that's a little feature not everyone knows about, but there's a, there's a section called Hot or Not where you rate other people's songs. If you rate 10 of them, you can have your own song rated five times. And if you leave feedback, you can actually earn premium credits for doing that. So if you put in the time, you don't actually have to spend any money. So I kind of want to go back to the conversation we were having around that RE Spotify playlist discussion who has influence right now when it comes to marketing a song in 2020? A lot of people felt like Spotify playlists were going to replace music blogs, but I don't think anything actually has. Music blogs had an incredible amount of power back in, in 2012, 2013. Uh, that Coachella reference I made earlier was real. If you consistently hit the top of Hype Machine, you were going to be plastered everywhere, right? Record labels were going to be lining up to sign a deal with you. Nothing has replaced that. And a lot of focus and energy is on Spotify playlists these days. But from everything I've seen, it's not a good look. It's not going to get people to show up at your performances. Not that anyone's doing performances right now. But I think I think people are going to find that Spotify playlists were kind of worthless. It's I, I, I'll give you anecdotally, my listening behavior on Spotify is yeah. very passive, right? I find a playlist that's recommended to me by Spotify. I hit play in the background and that's it. I don't know whose song it is. I'm definitely not going to show up at their live performance. And as soon as that song gets removed from the playlist, it's done, right? And so I do see a lot of people chasing Spotify playlists today, and I'm not sure it's the right way to do it. So um, Ari himself is, is a huge proponent of skipping the playlists and trying to do a lot more direct and targeted advertising. And for me, I think this gets to uh, an idea of it's, I think it's called a thousand true fans. I can't. I can't remember Ke- Kevin Kelly or something like that who, who wrote a little book about it or short story or whatever. Yeah. But the idea is that a thousand true fans is all you actually need to make a, a living doing whatever you do: painting, making music, whatever. If you can find a thousand true passionate fans who are willing to show up at your concert, buy your vinyl, download your Bandcamp album, whatever you're going to be in a far better place. And so if I was an artist today, my focus would be first and foremost on how I can generate those thousand true fans rather than how I can get my vanity numbers up on Spotify. And, And this does bring me back to blogs because when a blog writes about you, it's someone genuinely engaging with and, and participating with your song and it's up there. It doesn't just disappear. Um, you know, if you got written about, by Indie Shuffle in 2009, it's still there. It's still on Google. It's still on Indie Shuffle. We're not taking it down. And when you want to try to get booked for a show, <laughs> like, what are you going to do? You're going to show up and say, hey, I was in a Chill Beats Spotify playlist. <laughs> yeah. Or are you going to link them to some press? And um, for me, I think linking them to press is probably going to be far more effective. So 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's more about building those relationships and trying to find true dedicated fans rather than spraying and praying with the Spotify playlist. It's it's temporary. It's it's passive. People aren't paying attention. You might be able to earn some money. I mean, there definitely are people earning money through it. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's it's certainly not the blog killer, right? It it yeah. Well, maybe the wrong way to put it. It was the blog killer, but it sure didn't make anything better. I mean, I think that's really important to point out. And I think the example that you just gave is the one that I always refer to in terms of all of like the chill hip hop, lo-fi beats playlists where, you know, go to the first artist on any of those playlists and, you know, their monthly listeners might be 2 million, great number, they're earning revenue, but they can't sell a damn ticket in their hometown. And that is important to realize because I think so many people think like the key to growth in 2020, the number one thing is getting an editorial Spotify playlist. And sure, that can help, but it's kind of like not necessarily empty numbers, but thinner numbers that are vanity to an extent, like you said, that don't drive ticket sales, don't drive merch sales to an extent that other more targeted personal marketing efforts might like, you know, connecting with them on a blog post. Yeah. Uh, YouTube videos can also help. I mean, they're, they're much longer term, right? If you get picked up by a YouTube channel, boom, not only are you going to get tens of thousands of views from that typically um but you're also going to be up there in perpetuity playlisting is not all it's cracked up to be i mean look it can be cool and and there's definitely upsides to triggering the algorithm getting picked up editorially especially in a time like now right when when there is no live performance revenue so you do have to try to figure out different ways to do it it's just that that as as far as building a career goes i don't think it's cracked up to what it what it is so I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the founder of Submit Hub what artists can do to get their tracks accepted more on Submit Hub. So kind of like a general open-ended question, but what would you say to an artist that you know has a couple of releases, maybe they're getting some interest from blogs, but want to get more success on for what many of them is kind of the peak of their promotion efforts, which is to submit on Submit Hub? It ultimately becomes a product of the amount of time you're willing to invest in researching. So SubmitHub provides an overwhelming amount of data, a lot of which is not right there front and center. It's sort of hidden behind a button. For example, yeah. right next to every single curator listing, you'll see a button that says recent shares. And it's got a play icon next to it. And that's because if you click on it, it opens up a pop-up that shows you all of the songs they've recently shared and approved through SubmitHub within the genre that you're looking at. And you can listen to them in line. And that's a really great way of trying to determine whether, A, your definition of the genre is the same as their definition of the genre, and B, what kind of stuff they're approving. So that's an example of, of spending a little bit of extra time on each curator and stopping and looking. If you don't want to spend that extra time and you do just want to sort of blaze through it, the things to look yeah. at are definitely the genre match score, which is something gives you a pretty good indicator of whether they are going to like the genre or genres that you've chosen. And then also the approval rate. If you see someone has an approval rate of 1%, don't expect to get approved by them. I mean, it's sort of a no-brainer, right? But I, I often see artists jump on and choose the 10 biggest curators to send to. And then they get upset when no one bites. And if you just stop and think about it, those 10 biggest curators are getting the most submissions. And they've got really low approval rates because they are spoiled for choice. They've got a million things they can choose from. And yours is one of 200 songs that arrived that day. And they're only going to publish one YouTube video. So 
you're setting yourself up for defeat if you do that. I think focusing on some of the smaller guys who don't get as many submissions and tend to have a slightly higher approval rate is going to be a much more successful way to go. So I think this comes back to the idea of developing or finding true fans. These curators ultimately can become your true fans. And maybe they don't have the hugest audience, but they might put your song on while they're having friends over for dinner and that type of thing. They're going to start to spread the word that way for you. And so going after the little guys, probably going to be a good strategy because those big guys are getting hammered by the major labels, by publicists. The artists you're competing against are on a whole different level. Look, chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you are not on the level of most of those artists. No offense to anyone listening, but I mean, that's a reality of it, right? It's like the, yeah. the, we're talking the top, the cream of the crop, the ones that got, they didn't just get picked up by Universal. They got like signed to full salaries. They've got an yeah. entire marketing team behind them. They've got millions of fans. Like the chain smokers use Submit Hub for every release. Are you going to beat them? I don't know, <laughs> right? But they're probably not going to sit there and, and send to some of the really small curators. So I would say a good strategy is to hone in on people who like your sound, have a history of liking it, but also are not overwhelmed by choice. So, you know, we've talked a lot about where SubmitHub is for, you know, artists within their marketing promotion strategy. What would you say that an independent artist, maybe with, say, two to 3,000 followers that might have some label interest, but is just kind of doing things independently, what are some of the other things that you would encourage them to do outside of leveraging what you have in SubmitHub? Uh, definitely tell your mom and dad they're going to be your biggest fans. <laughs> Two um, super fans right there. Yeah. Look, uh, there's a million YouTube videos out there right now about how to promote your music. Some of the more effective strategies I've seen people using are around Instagram advertising. I've heard Facebook advertising itself is not so good, but to do Instagram advertising, you have to go through Facebook. But you can do some really hyper-targeted advertising there that might actually generate some genuinely interested listeners. There's also a lot of communities on Reddit, not just the big ones like We Are The Music Makers, but niche subreddits that are focused on specific genres or specific techniques where you can find a community of other listeners just like you. That's another one. Leveraging fellow artists is going to be a big one, right? They, they, They share the same hobby and passion as you. And so finding those communities to, to work through is another great one. Um, they have fans, and if they really like your music, they're going to introduce your music to their fans. So building those relationships with other artists is also a huge opportunity for moving towards that goal of having a 1,000 true fans. So another softball question. Looking back, you know, you've been doing this for 12, 13 years in terms of when you started Indie Shuffle Is there anything looking back that you feel like you would have done differently in terms of the way that you were running your business or in terms of new ideas that you kind of missed out on or new ideas that you chased that you probably shouldn't have? I think the answer to that question is going to vary dramatically based on where someone is in that stage. And right now, I'm at the pinnacle of my success. What a statement. (laughs) But, but it, it's kind of true. And so looking back from this position, I would say I wouldn't change a thing, right? Because yeah. changing something then might mean that I wouldn't be where I am today. There were definitely mistakes that were made. Uh, you know, like one basic one was shifting Indie Shuffle from WordPress to a custom 
build platform. I actually brought in a team from Bangladesh to help me do it, and it was an absolute disaster. Our apps, our app totally bugged out. We lost tens of thousands of users. Our SEO tanked. It was a terrible moment in Indie Shuffle's history. So I guess if I were to go back, I'd probably say, fuck it, we're just staying on WordPress. And WordPress is completely capable. I just don't think at the time I realized how capable it was. Um, yeah. Like WordPress itself, it's just a content management system. You can build whatever you want on top of it. And I, I wasn't thinking that way. So off the top of my head, that's one thing that really sucked. Um, from Submit Hub standpoint, so far I think it's gone pretty well. There have definitely been some downs, but I would say almost all of my downs involve critique of the platform. I don't think it's easy for anyone to take critique in any way. But what I have tried to do with those critiques is turn them into improvements to the platform so that those critiques don't come up again, if that makes sense. Totally. But for me, that's been the hardest part of Submit Hub. Is, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the, the entire basis of the platform is based on subjectivity and, yeah. and selection and people being picky and, and denial and declines. And there's a lot of negativity floating around. So over the last four and a half years, that's really been the challenge is trying to set expectations with artists and myself about handling that, that, that negativity and working through it. Cool. So a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. So we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. If you were to recommend a few books that each of them should read that will give them the best mindset and you know structure moving forward with music as a career, what would those books be? I'm going to throw you a curveball here. For me, it's fiction. It's something that takes yeah. me to a totally different place and disconnects me from the question at hand. I feel yeah. that, again, this is very personal and it's not the same for everyone, but a lot of those self-help books don't actually help me because I just get lost in a lot of what's going on there and, and I just get into this endless cycle. The other thing, <laughs> my wife will sometimes ask me when I'm working on a new project or coding something different, she'll ask whether I've you know kind of done my research into how other people do it, et cetera. And uh tend to lean towards saying, no, nah, I, I don't want to see how they do it because then I yeah. won't come up with something unique or original. So for me, reading is about disconnecting and, and using my mind for something else because I think there's a danger in becoming too obsessed with something. And a lot of the inspiration that hits us comes, well, it, it's, it's called inspiration for a reason, right? It comes out of the blue. And so the more we feed it and the more we're trying to look for the answer, the harder it becomes to find, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's interesting you saying that because I kind of hit that turning point this year where kind of around January or February, pretty good timing pre-COVID, I just stopped all of those books because I felt like it was just kind of the same thing said in different ways. And so many of these books, like my girlfriend always mentions, can be summed up in like one two-page article. And... For me at this point, it's important to separate myself and have some contrast from what is my focus for the majority of my waking hours, which is music. And in the same way, I've kind of picked up fiction just to, one, be able to fully detach myself and have some space. Because if you're 24-7 music, you have no contrast and you can just burn yourself out. But 
Yeah, for me, that's been incredibly helpful. So it's interesting to hear you say that because I think there's just this constant push in the entrepreneurial space just to always be hacking and optimizing your productivity and creativity and, you know, bettering yourself. Not that that's not important, but like you said, look for answers in the right place, not the wrong ones. Yeah. You don't have to go all extreme and and join, you know, a a two week long silent meditation, but it's amazing how much more powerful your brain can get if you give it a rest. And so if you are using your downtime to read about how to improve your main focus, you're sort of defeating the purpose. True. Cool. So at this point, what is going to be coming up next for you in the summer with Submit Hub or any other projects that you've got going on? I'm doing renovations on a house. Awesome. That's going to be a big one. Yeah. Um, from Submit Hub's perspective, I think a lot of my focus is on trying to work less. So we are coding or I am coding a number of systems that will hopefully make it easier for our team to do the job that we do and ultimately outsource some of the repetitive tasks to the community itself. And and this can even involve customer support. Um, I'd love to get to a point where some of the more active members of the community can actually be compensated for the time that they spend helping out other people. And the net result there will be that it reduces the amount of time I have to spend on it. So <laughs> I think my focus over the next couple months is going to be on how I can spend less time working. And ironically, I'm going to have to spend more time working so that I can achieve that goal. Cool. So with that, we'll wrap things up for this podcast. You can learn more about Jason and Submit Hub and Indie Shuffle in the description of this podcast. So if you want to find out more, you can go give that a look. Jason, a great chat with you. Appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure.